0: You've got my, there you got my story. Just ask a woman. Wow. There you got my story. Troubles, troubles. There you got
1: my story. You are listening Just to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Despite being a century into the women's movement, it can at times feel as though progress has stalled. Indeed, old stereotypes about men and women's roles in the home persist and some recent reports show that a significant number of American millennials still believe that having a male breadwinner and a woman who stays home and cares for the kids and the household chores is an ideal option. 27 percent of males aged 14 to 24 say they believe women's gains have come at the expense of men. But why? The economic realities of American families and the American working class as well as things like the lack of parental leave, benefits, and job security that exist in the U.S. today, all factor into the choices people make at home and at work, and impact what they believe about their own disenfranchisement. While the backlash against women's rights is a cause for concern, it's useful to get the full picture. In order to do so, I spoke with Stephanie Kuntz, whose article Do Millennial Men Want Stay-at-Home Wives?, appeared in the New York Times on March 31st. Stephanie teaches history and family studies at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, is the director of research at the Council on Contemporary Families, and is the author of The Way We Never Were, American Families and the Nostalgia Trap. Here is an interview. Despite... You know, the apparent popularity of feminism these days, I do worry that the younger generation's genuine interest in women's liberation has waned. I wonder what your perspective is on that. I mean, are so-called millennials apathetic when it comes to fighting patriarchy?
0: Well, I don't think that it's quite that extreme, I think that the main point of the research that's coming out is not that millennials are moving backwards, but that there's no guarantee that they will continue to move forwards. And I think some people have just kind of assumed that we'll get to a feminist heaven by generational replacement. And the new evidence suggests that that's not true uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, there's a... Growing gender gap that is in part because of women's expanded aspirations, but young millennial men are actually more likely to say that um, we are that equality is a good thing, but that we're that we're there or close enough than older men are, who are having to interact with women who are complaining a lot more about it as mm-hmm. they age and see what's happening. Uh, we're also seeing that there's. Uh, The MTV poll found that younger millennials, uh, almost a quarter of them, think that uh, women's gains have come at men's expense. And I think that another important part of this research is to show that people go up and down in their attitudes toward women's uh, liberation. And that there are a lot of counteracting trends in this society, such as the tremendous losses that young men have undergone, especially men without a college education. And unless we keep explaining what's happening and explaining why it's not women's gains that are the problem facing families and facing men, uh, that there's no guarantee that we'll continue to go in a progressive direction. But I don't think that gloom is justified either.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's interesting that 27% of the younger millennials see women's gains as having come at the expense of men and that you know women's gains are somehow hurting men today. What's behind that?
0: Well, there's a kernel uh, of truth in their sense of loss. Uh, not that it is coming because of women, but you can see why people would be open to this kind of claim from social conservatives, because young men have found that their real wages have been falling after a long period of really having uh, tremendous uh, gains. From 1947 to 1979, every generation of men aged 25 to 35 was earning three to four times as much as their fathers had in real dollars at the same age. Mm -hmm. So it was a time of just thinking, oh gosh, things are getting better and better and better. But since 1980, they have started earning less in real wages. And that's even extended to some of the college-educated men. But it's a particular problem for men with only a high school degree or some college. So for them, what they see is women's wages continuing to rise up until very recently. Although women's wages started from a lower base, we human beings are relative animals. And so we judge ourselves in relation to our past trajectory. And so when young men see themselves falling further behind compared to their fathers and compared to the progress they were making in the past, they feel a sense of loss and demoralization that women don't feel when we look at our at our grandmothers, for example, and how far we've come since then. Even though we've not yet caught up with men, we are doing so much better than women of the past that I think we feel a sense of optimism and hope. Another factor that is important is that As a society, we've made more progress battling the feminine mystique than we have the masculine mystique. Mm -hmm. Now, make no mistake, we have made real progress, and as young millennials have entered marriages and relationships, we're seeing some tremendous progress there. But in those early days uh, of junior high school, high school, and even the early 20s, young women feel much more capable of doing jobs that were traditionally associated with men. You know, when I was a girl, you were often told, oh, don't excel at sports, don't be too smart at school. Young women don't feel that pressure anymore. They feel like they can take on any task or activity traditionally associated with men, and that adds to their, their identity as women and as persons. But men have not yet attain the same kind of freedom. They don't feel so free to take on tasks and activities formerly associated with women. In fact, they get teased and bullied when they do. They begin to grow out of that as they get older, but it's a real problem for young men. So you put together the economic loss and the continuation of the masculine mystique, and I'm not at all surprised that there is this ambivalence And a small section, a minority, but still an important section uh, of men who misunderstand what's happening and think that they are losing in relationship uh, to women, as opposed to the question of how working people as a whole have been losing.
1: So... You recently wrote about a set of reports that were released recently by the Council on Contemporary Families, and the reports show that fewer of those aged 18 to 25 support egalitarian family arrangements today than the same age group 20 years ago. I wonder if you can talk more about those specific findings and what that says
0: to you. Well, we have two sources. Uh, One is the Monitoring the Future survey of high school seniors. And uh, Joanna Pepin and David Cotter have been following this. Uh, It's been uh, asking young people how they feel about uh, women's roles at work and at home. And since the 1990s, it has stayed at about 90% really, really supporting uh, strongly women's opportunities and women's capabilities in the public world. But they've seen an upswing Uh, still a minority, but an upswing in the number of people who think that it's better. The the wording of the question is it's better for everyone concerned if the man is the achiever in the outside world and the woman takes care of home and family. We've seen an uptick in the number of men and women who say that that's true, and even an uptick in the number of men and women who say that it's better if the man makes the most important decisions in the home. Um, So that is concerning us. Among 18 to 25 year olds, that's a more complicated question uh, because the general social survey that asks that question of that age group doesn't have a very large sample. It's only about 200. So it's very volatile uh, from two years to two years. We saw between 1994 and 2014, this decline in support for egalitarianism. And in those years, it looked over that 20-year period as though the decline were driven primarily by men. But I had the embarrassing experience of a day after my, uh, my op-ed using this information hit the press, new 2016 data became available, and it showed a, a rebound in young men's support for egalitarian relations. When you average it out over the decades... We are still seeing that there is a a slightly higher support for traditionalism in the 2000s than there was in the 1990s, but it no longer looks like it's necessarily driven just by young men.
1: Hmm. I wonder if you think that there is a backlash happening against women's rights right now? You know, is there anything, you know, is there a new backlash, I guess I should say, because there's always some kind of backlash against feminism, but is there a particularly strong or, or notable backlash happening currently?
0: Well, when we put together this symposium for the Council on contemporary families, we got a lot of different ideas about what's happening. For example, Pepin and Cotter, believe that people are settling into an idea that allows them to accept equality in the outside world, but uh, to not think of men and women as interchangeable. And they call that uh, egalitarian essentialism. Uh, The idea being that feminism is just about personal choice, not about politics. And as long as the choices are not actually constrained and you're forced to quit work upon motherhood, uh, that those choices uh, must be for the best. Uh, Of course, this This ideology completely ignores the way that women are channeled into these choices long before they're old enough to make uh, real ones. We have new evidence that comes out, for example, that at age five, girls think that other girls are just as intelligent as boys. Um, But by age six, they tend to think of boys as the smarter sex and girls as the sex that tries harder. Hmm. And another study shows that uh, somewhere between kindergarten and first grade, teachers start discriminating against girls in the way that they teach math to them. So these are very early choices that you're channeled into, and uh, egalitarian essentialism may be sort of a justification for not fighting back against uh, those choices. But there are other possibilities too. Uh, for example, some research point researchers point out that this is a generation that experienced the teenage years during the aftermath of the housing crisis and right during the recession, a period when many men were losing their jobs or being cut back, when women were having to step up to the plate in a society that has no support systems for dual earner families. And so another possibility is that some kids have seen their parents really struggling With how to divide work and family, you know, three jobs basically among two people uh, without any support systems in our paid parental leave, in flexible work hours, in affordable childcare, and decided that maybe it would be easier, whatever their ideal might be, to to go back to a more traditional arrangement. And one thing that supports that interpretation is that when we look at Europe, we see no such fall-off in young people's support for egalitarianism, the uh, support for egalitarianism there where you have good work, family policies that make it easier to integrate work and family life. We've seen a continuing rise in support for gender equality. But you also raise the point of polarization and uh, another political scientist has found that in a period when men are losing income to women, that you get a polarization there, that liberal men tend to become more liberal on many questions, but the conservative men tend to become more conservative. So this is kind of a moving target. We're still trying to figure out what's happening. And yet another factor is that in 1994, a much higher proportion of 18 to 25-year-olds were married and had moved into jobs where they had to deal with uh, the other sex as, you know, colleagues rather than as potential partners or dating partners. Uh, And that makes a big difference too, because one of the puzzlements when we first began to see these figures was that We've seen that young millennials who are in relationships are, in fact, more behaving in more egalitarian ways than the older generation. It used to be that for marriages formed in the, in the 70s and 80s, uh, if a woman had more education than her husband, that raised the risk of divorce. Up until the 90s, if a woman had higher earnings than her husband, that raised the risk of divorce. For marriages formed since the early 90s, neither of those things is true. And we find that young men are expressing tremendous uh, work-family conflict themselves and are, in fact, doing a lot more child care and uh, cooking and cleaning than men of the past did. So it's a mixed bag here. And for me, the real takeaway is that these things don't just happen in and of themselves. That people get mixed messages, they have mixed experiences, and particularly in America, where parents are more stressed than in any of twenty-two countries that were recently studied by Jennifer Glass and report more unhappiness compared to non-parents and that is entirely explained by the lack of work family policies. Here I think that it's very important to understand that these things are always subject to backlash because they are so stressful for us and there's of course a large social conservative movement that wants to say the stress is not because of our lack of work-family policies, but is because it's bad for families to go out and work. And that's mm-hmm. contrary to all the evidence.
1: So to me, this sounds like it connects to Trump's election. I mean, you know, we're, we're a century into the women's movement. We understand as a society that women are equal or should be equal. I mean, supposedly we understand this. <laughs> um, yet America elected this total misogynist and you know he had a lot of support and has a lot of support still you know this is a man who brags openly about sexual assault who's allegedly abusive who obviously sees women you know as sex objects and less than human he doesn't see women as his equal what does this tell you about the state of women's rights um, the effectiveness of the feminist movement the current state of feminist politics and and ideas around gender in the US in particular i'd say
0: well i mean it it certainly confirms that some uh, feminists have been living in a bubble that they have underestimated the extent of the resistance to change uh, and also that many feminists and liberals have tremendously underestimated and in my opinion been woefully neglectful of the very real problems facing working class families. Uh, in my view, when Clinton talked a lot about, you know, the needs for work family supports and this sort of thing, and whenever she would talk about inclusion, I would sit there with my husband watching her speeches on TV, and I would say, well, why don't you add meat packers to that list of people we want inclusive, you know? Uh, why don't you add truck drivers? Um, there was this Real neglect of working class families that have experienced tremendous losses in job security and in real earnings. And that's so easy then to get into a situation where people look at the gains that women have made and think maybe those gains and the weight gains that black Americans and Hispanics have made and think that maybe those gains are being made at their expense. That's not true. The same things. That, that do benefit women and blacks and are hurting them now uh, are the things that have hurt white working class americans that 's the deunionization of jobs the outsourcing not just to other countries but the outsourcing of jobs to independent contractors uh, so that the main employers no longer have to worry about paying benefits and and decent wages they can outsource it to these companies who compete to race to the bottom. And that's what's driven down the real wages of white working class men and is also driving down the wages of minorities and women. But you're in a situation where because white working class men always had such an advantage, they see the class polarization that's now occurring among women and among minorities, and they see some women and blacks and Hispanics going up in the earnings distribution, and they think of themselves as being left behind by that. In fact, of course, the vast majority of high-earning individuals are still white men, but since white male is the default in the American kind of discussion and thinking about race and, and gender, those men don't see that as, as representing them. They see, they see the class issues there, and what they see is this new rising of 10% or 20% of women and, and minorities into high earners, still very much discriminated against in those high earners so that the high earners are worried about the glass ceiling, but increasingly working class Americans are worried about the sinking floor. And to the extent that feminism has not really identified our struggles as women with those of our brothers and husbands and uh, colleagues uh, in the white male working class as well as uh, in the minority working class, we have, I think, uh, contributed to that problem. Hmm. These are such complicated issues. I saw an interesting poll of Trump supporters, 30% of whom supported Planned Parenthood and abortion rights, didn't want abortion to be completely outlawed, and a majority of whom said they were upset by Trump's comments about women. But there were other things that seemed to override it. And that's a challenge to us to to make sure that other things don't override that. Just as it's a challenge to the entire movement to take on the racism and the misogyny, we also have to be much more conscious of these class issues.
1: I wanted to talk a little bit more about marriage because I find that, you know, the persistence of traditional marriage today... Um, I find it strange, I guess <laughs> I find it strange that you know even among liberals and progressive people, traditional roles within marriages persist, even though, as you say, you know it's getting better, but still, I think in most marriages, women end up doing the bulk of the housework child rearing um and beyond that, women continue today to you know do things like take on their husband's names and a lot of these women who, who take on their husband's name in marriage and who maybe take on traditional roles within marriage, and we've talked about the economic factors that, that play into all that, but when we're talking about choice, you know, when we're talking about middle class, probably liberal women, choosing these roles and, and choosing to take on their husband's names and choosing to have traditional-ish marriages and, and traditional weddings... What is that about? You know, what does that tell you about women's rights and, and why do these trends persist? You know, why, why aren't more women pushing back against these ideas?
0: Well, again, I think we have a complex set of reasons that really varies and that it's extremely important not to draw hard and fast conclusions about the whole group on the basis of these trends. Um, I think that you see this kind of traditionalism, most in symbolism, uh, which is interesting. The symbolism seems to really stay on, even with people who are tremendously egalitarian in practice. You know, it's the man who asks the the woman to marry him, Mm -hmm. even though, in fact, most usually know what's going on, and the woman may have been just as much involved in the decision. But boy, it's the man who asks, yes, well, women tend to take them, man's name still. I think we may be seeing as the age of marriage continues to rise and you have more women who have established reputations, I think we may see a resurgence of uh, separate names being taken. It was a real problem for women in the 70s and 80s just because of the, the question of, you know, how, how long you can do this with the kids. So, you know, I tend to be a little soft on the question myself. Mm-hmm. I understand the the mechanics of it. Uh, but the symbolism is is seems to be very important to, to people. Women's housework is a really interesting thing. And again, without taking men off the hook and I think that men just have not been socialized to see the kind of housework, and especially the kind of executive decision-making that has to be done to get the affairs of a household and a family going. Uh, They often have a kind of learned helplessness, you know, well, what do I do next? Uh, which, of course, makes women more likely to step in and feel like it's easier to do it themselves. On the other hand, I think that we as women have to recognize that even when we're single, we do more housework than than men do. Some of it has been socialized into us, and we have to blame not our relationship, but our socialization uh, as to whether we can let go of it. I know that for myself, there's certain aspects of cooking, for example, that take much longer than it should and it's a form of self-soothing for me. Uh, So you've got that going on. You've got a certain amount of gatekeeping that we have to recognize that goes on because just as men are socialized into helplessness, we have been socialized into getting a lot of gratification out of being the experts uh, as to how the home works and as how the uh, kids are to be raised. So we want a man to pitch in, but more as an unskilled assistant sometimes than as a real partner. And I know that I noticed, I've talked about gatekeeping for many years, but uh, it wasn't that long ago when my husband walked in and watched me reloading the dishwasher and said to me, you know, if you're going to reload it, why should I load it in the first place? (laughs) Which, Which made me realize that I was doing the same thing. So there's a lot of, you know, we are trying to change hundreds of years of socialization and particularly 200 years of extensive socialization that said to women, you are no longer under the thumb of a man the way you were for thousands of years. You are, in fact, the expert in family life, in nurturing, in child rearing, in emotional intelligence. And we, just as the men learn to rely on that for us, we learn to get a certain amount of gratification of it. So we both have to struggle with that. And at the same time, we have to struggle with the incredible lack of support systems for egalitarian marriages in our society, where we have, you know, every other industrial country in the world uh, has guaranteed paid leave for mothers. Most of of the, of the top productive uh, economies in the country, all but Switzerland and the United States, also now guarantee paid leave for, for fathers. They guarantee flexibility, they guarantee limits on the right to overtime, paid vacation days, the right to take off time to take your kids to the doctor, and breastfeeding breaks. The only one of those that we have is breastfeeding breaks, and that came in very, very recently. The result is that it's terribly stressful to really organize an egalitarian household, and it's easy to slip into old patterns. mm mm-hmm.
1: I wanted to come back to something you touched on earlier around the idea of choice and the fact that, you know, it's pretty common in mainstream feminism to consider the idea of choice as kind of the main point of feminism and as liberating in and of itself. So, you know, things that may have been considered sexist and regressive during second wave feminism might not be considered so today because there are things that women believe they're choosing freely. I wonder if you see that idea of choice feminism as sort of playing into these traditional roles in marriages and maybe discouraging women from pushing back against ideas that would have been considered sexist or or regressive in the, the 60s and 70s.
0: Well, I think it does operate in that way to some extent. I, I like to be as charitable as I can when I think about people's reactions, and I understand why people say, uh, okay, I would like the choice to, to stay home. On the other hand, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if men also had the same choices? And wouldn't it be nice if our own choices were actually freely made between equally attractive alternatives? as, for example, they might be if our choice was between uh, staying home and specializing in child care, uh, which means to some extent excluding our husband or our our male partner from that because he can't afford to, and also jeopardizing our own financial future versus having the kind of uh, parental leave policies that allow us to go back to work without feeling guilty because we have good affordable childcare and because we know that we can take time off when our kids are sick and also having partners who can take time off and we know that when uh, in the countries that have begun to to really push paternity leave and make it not something that the men can just turn over to the women, it is changing their behavior in tremendous ways. The men who take paternity leave are much more likely, years after they go back to work, to be involved fathers. They're much less likely to be fighting with their uh, wives over chores. They do more chores. The women are more likely to increase their work hours because they feel comfortable about it. So, you know, it's Sometimes it's really important for us to ask ourselves, what are we choosing? Are we choosing between lesser evils or should we build a society where you really would have a free choice and it would be equally available to uh, men as well as women?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And finally, what do you think the feminist movement needs to be focusing on right now in response to all this um, in response to all the things we've discussed in response to you know the kind of backlash that's coming from white working class men who are sort of misunderstanding um, why they're feeling disenfranchised and responding more broadly to the challenges women and other minorities are facing in light of the Trump administration
0: Well, of course we have some real organizing to do, um, both against the kind of misogyny of Trump with its blatant treatment of women as sexual objects and the equally, I think, regressive ideas of a Pence who is chivalrous toward women to the point that he is still treating them as totally vulnerable and dependent, uh, you know, his his idea that he won't have dinner with a woman who is not his wife without his wife there. Um, That's a different kind of uh, misogyny, but that is still very much inhibits women's um, moves toward real equal acceptance in the public world. So we have to fight about those things. We have to defend Planned Parenthood, our reproductive rights. We certainly should not give an inch to racism or to sexism. But I think that we do have to use our imaginations a little more to understand why not just men but some women are responding to the crisis of class in this society and the growing inequality and insecurity by seeing the emphasis on the glass ceiling as something that is not in their interest. Uh, we have to be equally concerned with the sinking floor. We have to listen carefully, get past the use of labels, you know, you're a patriarch, you're a racist, and actually explain to people where we can agree because uh, some of these people do agree with us more than it might sound. From And that's where we have to reach out to without accommodating, without pandering. It's interesting. My my husband used to work in a lot of industrial jobs. And when he would hear racist remarks, he would never say, uh, that's racist. He would say, well, you know, personally, I'm not prejudiced. And as soon as he said it that way and not as an attack, people would feel compelled to solidarize themselves uh, with that way. I've always uh, taken that as a really good example of how we have to be able to reach beyond people's initial rhetoric and find out if there is a kernel of agreement that we can build them on. Sometimes there's not, and then we have to be absolutely adamant in rejecting any concessions to racism and misogyny. But sometimes there are areas in which we can find agreement if we don't just immediately uh, bristle at the words they use that may be different than ours or the misconceptions they have that may be understandable if you step back from them for a while. So I'm a big believer in mass action, but it should be the kind of mass action that invites more people to join rather than asking them to pass a test before they join. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I think
0: that's really important right now. You look at, for example, the efforts of people who are organizing labor unions. Uh, They don't go and ask people what their views are on 20 different other issues, you know? It's Mm -hmm. like, what can we do to protect our working conditions now? Let's come together and do it. And in the process of working in that, we can undermine some of those old prejudices. And I think that we have to take, uh, as as far as possible and without compromising, that kind of approach in the women's movement now.
1: Thank you again for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. I always find your work so interesting.
0: Oh, it's a real pleasure. You just heard an interview with
1: Stephanie Kuntz, who teaches history and family studies at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, is the director of research at the Council on Contemporary Families, and is the author of The Way We Never Were, American Families, and the Nostalgia Trap. Her article, Do Millennial Men Want Stay-at-Home Wives?, was published in the New York Times on March 31st. For more on her work, visit stephaniekunst.com. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com. Tweet at us at Feminist Current or send us an email at infofeministcurrent.com. At we are hosted by Libson, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, B.C. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.